Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today on the Film & Whiskey Podcast, we will be reviewing the 2024 list of Oscar nominees. Then I'll be running through my top 10 films of 2023 as we dive into Bardstown Bourbon Company's Discovery Series 11. This is the The Film & Whiskey Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome into the Film and Whiskey Podcast. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And today we are coming at you with another special bonus episode. Mm, bonus episode. Brad, it is that time of year again. The Oscar nominations have been announced. Uh, your boy did not wake up at 5.30 a.m. because I'm not on the West Coast. But at 8.30 a.m., <laughs> a much more manageable time, those nominations rolled in. And, uh, you know, there really aren't a lot of surprises here. If you've been following award season at all, it's it's a pretty standard list of Oscar nominees. There's a few surprises thrown in here and there, and we'll get into talking about all of them. But, Brad, I'm excited to talk to you about the Oscars because I think that between the two of us, we represent the spectrum of film fans pretty well. You know, I am the guy that is constantly on Twitter and learning way too much about each film that comes out. And X, Bob. X. X, yes, yes, yes. I'm way too heavily prioritizing what to go see and thinking that this might be a best picture movie. And then, of course, it gets zero Oscar nominations. And so I am like chronically online. Brad, you are a lover of films, but you are chronically (laughs) offline. Yeah, I was about to say I am never online at all. I literally (laughs) just got online for the first time today. To ever. see these nominees. The first time yeah, ever. ever. This is it. <laughs> Someone had to teach you how to use the internet today. <laughs> what does WWW mean? Oh, man. So, okay. I, I think my big worry here is that this could be an episode where Bob lists things and gives his opinion and Brad is stuck saying, huh, cool. And I don't want that to be the no, case. I'm, I'm going to give opinions on all of the people <laughs> Based on movies that I know them from. Okay, I like that. Not not based on what they actually are nominated for. So we'll go through at least the major categories today. We're going to talk about the best picture nominees, best director, best actor, and best actress. And if we have, you know, if we dabble in others, fine. But here's let's set the stage here, Brad, because like I said, my fear is that you would have nothing to say. 
Uh, it needs to be established up front. How many of the Best Picture nominees have you actually seen? Um, I have seen Past Lives. Mm-hmm. I have seen The Holdovers. Mm-hmm. And that is it. Okay. So as of yesterday, when and I you, saw you in person, you had only seen that's one That's not of, true. What? I, on an airplane flight, halfway watched Barbie on somebody else's screen. <laughs> so I, I, I as, saw- As God and Greta Gerwig intended. <laughs> yeah, I saw like a quarter of that movie and did not hear any of the dialogue. So All I don't right. know if that counts, cool. but- uh, <laughs> I'm not a huge fan of Barbie, but I will reserve my judgment on whether or not that counts as seeing the movie. Uh, so anyway, I was going to say, okay. <laughs> you have only seen, as of yesterday, when we saw each other in person, you had only seen Past Lives, and that was only as the result of me pestering you repeatedly. You need to see Past Lives. It was so good. Uh, crucially, you have not yet seen Oppenheimer. I think the film that probably, mm -hmm. aside, I mean, aside from Barbie, the, the film that the most people have seen Despite my constant badgering for you to go see Oppenheimer. And I think that it may just be like, I think you might just be doing it on purpose at this point. You're just holding out on seeing Oppenheimer ever. Yes, it's it's not about me choosing to spend more time with my family. It is 100% <laughs> about you, Bob. <laughs> As all things are, Brad. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so I think the good thing about our dynamic, though, Brad, is that you definitely are closer to representing like the average moviegoer than I am. Obviously, I see way too many movies. So I think we can point out actual problems with the Oscars and with the disconnect between the general audience and what gets nominated, because I think there is one. One of the most frustrating things that I see when I'm online is, you know, people on film Twitter. Every time somebody suggests that there is a disconnect, they, you know, they bitch and moan and they're like... People just don't want to see good movies. And it's like, no, I think there are real systemic issues in how these movies get distributed, in how they get seen. And I think that there's like a hierarchy built into some of this, where if you're not living in New York and L.A., you often don't even get a chance to see the movies until after the nominations come out, which I think is absolutely ridiculous. So we'll dive into talking a little bit about what it's like to maybe get your first exposure to these movies as a member of the general population after they've already had a nomination slapped on them. But Brad, let's, let's go ahead and dive into the nominations themselves. Should we start with the big one or should we kind of work our way up to that? Uh, let's bury the lead a little bit. Oh, nice. Okay. Well, what category do you want to start with here? Uh, let's, let's start with actors and actresses. Okay. We'll talk about best actor and best actress where there were a couple pretty major surprises. Notably, in Best Actor, Leonardo DiCaprio did not make the cut. Now, he was hovering, you know, if you go to like the awards prognosticator websites, he was hovering around that fifth place area in terms of whether or not he would get in. He did not. He was replaced by Coleman Domingo in Rustin, which is a movie that absolutely sucked. Just a terrible, terrible Netflix <laughs> Oscar bait movie. I do, however, love Coleman Domingo. He's a guy that we've talked about on this podcast before, Brad. He played uh, the dad in If Beale Street Could Talk. He's been in a ton of movies. Okay. He's like a classic yeah. that guy. And now he's finally getting his Oscar recognition. And so I'm really glad he's nominated. I thought that that movie was just awful. But your nominees for Best Actor are Bradley Cooper in Maestro, Coleman Domingo in Rustin, 
Paul Giamatti in The Holdovers, Killian Murphy in Oppenheimer, and Jeffrey Wright in American Fiction. This is, I mean, by all accounts, this is like a, a two-horse race at this point. It's just Giamatti and Killian Murphy. And Murphy won a couple awards in the early going, and Giamatti's been kind of cleaning up since then. And I think there's a huge wave of people being like, you know what? We love Paul Giamatti. It is his time. And yep. right now, he's the odds-on favorite to win, which I think will surprise a lot of Oppenheimer people. But first of all, watch The Holdovers. And then get back yes. to me and tell me if you think Paul Giamatti deserves it or not. Because not only is it a great movie, it's a really good performance. Yeah, I having watched The Holdovers as of last evening, I can very <laughs> confidently say that Giamatti just turns in a spectacular performance. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I'm sure we'll talk about the other movies as they come about, but The Holdovers, man, it is a brilliant brilliant film where they take dead poets society remove all the bombast and like the stakes don't feel as high and yet they feel so much more real than in dead mm-hmm. poets society mm-hmm. and giamatti is just awesome just, he's yeah. just so so believable and relatable and you just feel for him so deeply in your soul mm-hmm yeah, I, I do love the Dead Poet Society comparison because the holdovers is essentially that, except it's like, what if the Ethan Hawke character and Robin Williams were stuck together and there weren't any other kids around? And you get to watch such and, complete character arcs. And they as didn't a like each other. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> and then they learned to like each other over the course of two hours. It is just one of my favorite movies of the year. I've been recommending it to people left and right because it's, you know, I hate to say like they don't make them like this anymore, but. It's such a throwback. It's set in the 70s and it's a coming of age tale with a lot of heart. It's really earnest. I just I loved the holdover so much, Brad. How did you feel about the choice to like make it fully immersed in the 70s? Like the opening scenes look like they're from a 70s movie. Mm-hmm. The titles feel like, you know, the 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 credits mm-hmm. played over the top look like a 70s movie. Did you enjoy that? I did. I mean, like. It it definitely thrusts you right into what we're going to be doing here for two hours. And and I liked it. You know, it was a little much, but I also think that like they they drop that kind of shtick pretty quickly as you get into the movie. And so like if you if you don't find that to be cute, then you can get past it pretty quickly. But yeah, we'll talk yeah. about the holdovers a little bit more later on in the episode. Let's get into best actress where your nominees are Annette Benning in Nyad. Lily Gladstone in Killers of the Flower Moon, Sandra Huller in Anatomy of a Fall, Carrie Mulligan in Maestro, and Emma Stone in Poor Things. Now, the big surprise in this category is the inclusion of Annette Benning, who apparently has been out in Hollywood just glad-handing and campaigning and getting herself back into this race because this movie, Nyad, it's a true story about the swimmer, Diana Nyad, Annette Benning plays her really well. She's apparently a very difficult person, the real life uh, uh, Nyad. And they capture that in the movie. The problem is the movie blows. It is <laughs> it is like what I said about Rustin, <laughs> except like 10 times worse. I this movie was interminable and I felt like it was pandering to every Oscar voter over the age of 60. I just could not stand this movie. And I thought, you know, a month ago that like, 
I didn't have to hear about this movie anymore because it's a movie that dropped on Netflix that no one watched. But the thing about the Oscars, man, is if you live in the epicenter of Oscar voters in L.A. and you can do a bunch of campaign events, then it doesn't matter what the rest of the world thinks of your movie. You can convince enough people to get you into this list of five. So Annette Benning is in your best actress lineup. Right now, the odds on favorite is Lily Gladstone in Killers of the Flower Moon, but she's kind of neck and neck with Emma Stone in Poor Things. Of this list, Brad, like, they're they're all good performances. I really liked Sandra Huller in Anatomy of a Fall, a movie that we'll talk about in a little bit. I thought Maestro was another, like, please give me an Oscar type movie, but Carrie Mulligan's really good in it. So I don't know, Brad. I know that you've familiarized yourself with these movies. Which of these intrigues you or like which ones do you have more questions about? I'm curious about poor things. I, <laughs> I this is going to sound bad, Bob. I don't have any desire to see Killers of the Flower Moon. Mm. Like from the very start, all the previews, everything. I just didn't really have any interest in that movie. It so, was a movie that is really you know, good. I, I saw it twice. I took myself to the movie theater two times to see a three and a half hour movie because I saw <laughs> it the first time and I was like, this was good. I don't know if I am on board with this as a Scorsese masterpiece the way a lot of people were. And I saw it again and it confirmed to me that this is like a really strong seven and a half to eight out of ten. Yeah. But that I just I think that the decisions they made and how to tell the story of this movie are fundamentally flawed and it makes for a less I don't want to say entertaining because it's like a heavy movie but like compelling. it's just a worse it's yeah it's a less compelling film to me because of the way they told the story and so I love Lily Gladstone she, I think she deserves all the praise she's getting and the nominations she's getting and she might win and I think that would be deserved but I just I am not as high on Killers of the Flower Moon as most people are has Emma Stone won an Oscar yet she did. She won for La La Land. So she's going for number two, which would put her in kind of rarefied air. I don't know that we always think of Emma yeah. Stone as like one of our most prestigious actresses, but she absolutely is. Uh -uh. Poor Things is another movie that like if it if I could call any movie this year the anti Brad G movie, it would be Poor Things because that movie is deeply, <laughs> deep, deeply weird uh, like this. It, it's like if you had Tim Burton construct sets and then had him abandon the set and brought in Stanley Kubrick to make a sex movie. That's poor things. It's just like explicit sex, weird camera angles, huge Kubrick influences. And it's like kind of goofy and just uh, unbelievably unashamedly strange for two hours and 20 minutes. That's a really long time to sit through something like that, Bob. <laughs> That's a really long time. So I love Emma Stone. I, I think she's an incredible actress. I I think I'd be okay if somebody else won this year. But I, I honestly don't know anything about Lily, Sandra, or Carrie. Yeah. So that's kind of iffy and annette won did she win for she's American never Beauty? won that's why she's still doing this every time uh, she takes on a movie okay. it's like i want my freaking oscar she lost the oscar for american beauty to hillary swank in the movie boys don't cry which you know is i ah. i still have never actually seen that movie i have heard the performance is like an all-timer 
But everybody else that was associated with American Beauty won an Oscar that year, except for Annette Benning. Yeah. And I feel like we have, you know, 25 years of Oscar bait performances from Annette Benning because of that. And it just makes me wonder sometimes, like, was this all worth it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, ask ask Leo, man. He got mauled by a bear for a, for an Oscar. Well, and he doesn't have a nomination this year, and neither, crucially, does Margot Robbie for Barbie, which I thought was an absolute lock. Mm -mm. I am on record as a guy that just is not on the Barbie train. That movie did not work for me, and uh, I I didn't know if Greta Gerwig was going to get in as Best Director. I will say, as a guy who didn't like that movie, Margot Robbie absolutely deserved an Oscar nomination, and I'm, I'm kind of shocked to not see her here. I was going to say, that is flabbergasting to me, because as someone who did not see the movie, other than a quarter of it without volume, I, I, everything you heard about this movie felt like the obvious, let's nominate every single person who did anything for this movie. Mm -hmm. Like, if they had a Oscar for Best Gopher, like, the Barbie Gopher <laughs> would get it. All right, so there are your nominees for Best Actor and Best Actress. Let's talk best director for a minute, Brad. And this is where things always get interesting in the Oscar races. So for a long, long time, you know, best picture was only a five movie race. It's now been expanded to up to 10. You can have like eight. You can have nine. Typically, we get 10 nominees. But best director is still only a five person race. And so your nominees for best director are Justine Trier for Anatomy of a Fall, Martin Scorsese for Killers of the Flower Moon. Christopher Nolan for Oppenheimer, Yorgos Lanthimos for Poor Things, and Jonathan Glazer for The Zone of Interest. Now, I'm going to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take 30 seconds here and just rail against something, Brad. This movie, The Zone of Interest, is coming out today in North America. They're finally releasing it wide. I have nothing against this movie because I have not seen it. It is the only remaining Best Picture nominee that I have yet to see. And it is because there has been absolutely no way to see this movie prior to right now. It used to be, Brad, that like, you know, they always have tried to influence the Oscars uh, voters in L.A. the way that they try to influence like the Olympic Committee. Like there's a lot of we're sending gifts and we're holding parties and there's a lot of glad handing. But typically you used to see movies that are smaller like this come out in, you know, November, December, around Christmas time. And then work the campaign trail and get themselves an Oscar nomination. And these studios have become so shrewd that they figured out that what used to be called the Oscar bump, which is like your movie did nothing in December and then it got nominated for an Oscar and then people started to go see it. Why don't we just not release the movie except to people who live in these towns where there's Oscar voters, New York and L.A. And they can see it for two weeks <laughs> and then no one else can see it. It gets a ton of buzz. The critics love it. And we're all just waiting with bated breath. And we're going to hold that movie until Oscar nominations come out and then release it. And they're really like putting all their eggs in one basket here, because if the movie doesn't get any Oscar nominations, it's fine because no one was going to go see it anyway. So then they release it quietly and it flops. If it does get Oscar nominations, then that Oscar bump becomes your opening weekend now. And it just really bums me out as a guy who loves movies and who went to the movies way too many times last year that I chased down 
every single stupid movie that was only playing in one theater in Northeast Ohio and watched them all. And I still haven't seen all the movies that got nominated. And it's freaking February, Brad. You know what I mean? I do. But let's let's take the opposite tact, Bob. What if you were the one who put money behind it and wanted to make money off of it? Would you also make that decision? Well, if you know anything about this movie, um, I'm surprised that money is a motivating factor at all, because the plot of this movie by the director, Jonathan Glazer, is essentially following to my to my knowledge. It's following a week in the life of the family of the commandant of Auschwitz. And so they literally are you don't go into Auschwitz, for my understanding, but you hear the screams and cries and gunshots of Auschwitz in the background as you watch this family go about their daily tasks throughout a week. A very harrowing and haunting movie, but it does not scream box office juggernaut to me, Brad. <laughs> what are you talking about, Bob? That sounds just captivating <laughs> to the wider American audience. That's oh, yeah, riveting stuff. Okay, so crucially, there's a couple people missing here in this category, as there always is when there's only five nominees. Your movie is considered to be more of a to have more of a chance in Best Picture if it has a director nomination behind it. And then if you have a screenplay nomination, too, it's really considered to be, you know, a, a serious contender. Uh, Greta Gerwig missed the lineup here for Barbie. So Barbie is is kind of getting like, hey. We love you. You made a bunch of money. You made Hollywood better this year. Uh, take a back seat now. And Alexander Payne <laughs> missed here for The Holdovers, which I'm really kind of surprised to see because I thought The Holdovers, if you'd asked me three weeks ago, was going to be Oppenheimer's biggest competition in terms of splitting the vote. And now it kind of seems like everyone's gravitating towards Giamatti, not so much to the movie itself. I really do think, Brad, this is going to be the year that we just see one movie come in and take everything. And, and Oppenheimer really seems to be on track to do that. It's going to be a, a return of the king type of situation. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, yeah, it got 13 nominations. I could see it winning Ooh. almost all of them. It would be kind of funny, though, to see it win everything except best actor for Killian Murphy. Like... <laughs> I feel like, like the be... guy who played Oppenheimer. Yeah. <laughs> not good enough for an Oscar, but but everything else. That I think that would be a little sad though, because it seems like with Oppenheimer, a lot has come out about Killian Murphy. And he might be the most likable guy who has ever been like somewhat famous. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it is really nice to see the two front runners for the award for best actor, though, are both super likable. Because I yep. remember like the year that Michael Keaton was going up against Eddie Redmayne when he played Stephen Hawking. And like, I have nothing against Eddie Redmayne, but like, where has that dude been for the last five years? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like he won an Oscar when he was really young. And I feel like when that happens to you, sometimes it, it really puts the pressure on the rest of your career. And I would have loved to see Michael Keaton win that year instead. And this year it's like, if Killian Murphy wins, I'll be very happy for him. But if Paul Giamatti wins, like who's going to say no to watching Paul Giamatti win an Oscar? Yeah. Oh, dude, that that speech is going to be just perfect. <laughs> All right, let's dive into Best Picture and then we'll take a little break and drink some whiskey. So your 10 Best Picture nominees are American Fiction, Anatomy of a Fall, Barbie, The Holdovers, Killers of the Flower Moon, Maestro, Oppenheimer, Past Lives, Poor Things, and The Zone of Interest. Now, we've talked a little bit about The Zone of Interest. We've talked about Poor Things. 
I've mentioned Oppenheimer. I said that I begged you to go see past lives. Uh, I, I will say, Brad, I'm going to reveal my top 10 list here in a few minutes, but Past Lives is just a film that is near and dear to my heart. We haven't really talked about, let's see, we haven't mentioned American Fiction, Anatomy of a Fall, or Maestro. Let's start with Maestro. Are you familiar with this movie at all, Brad? It's uh, Bradley Cooper playing a maestro. Mm-hmm. That's about it. He is playing the famous American composer Leonard Bernstein. It is Bradley Cooper's follow-up directorial effort to A Star is Born. He's taken him like six years to make this movie. It is produced by Steven Spielberg and Martin Scorsese. They put a lot of trust and faith in this dude, Bradley Cooper, to make this movie. And it is... I've never heard of him. It is good. It is also like one of the most uh, disparate opinions i've had on a movie in a long time because i was watching it it dropped on netflix i watched it the first day my wife was in the other room doing stuff and she came in and asked how it was halfway through and i was like this movie absolutely sucks like it is unbelievably pretentious everything about it from the way they were doing these affected performances to the style of filmmaking it was just like it was as if bradley cooper was on his hands and knees begging people to give some awards validation and then the second half of the movie unbelievable like so good and i think that honestly i think more people than just me have had that opinion of the film that there's parts of it that are absolutely brilliant and other parts of it that are just a slog to get through and it seems like bradley cooper's trying too hard and so he got himself a lot of nominations for his movie but it seems like They're running in last place in every single one of these categories. I think a movie got like eight nominations or something, but it's not projected to win any of them. Mm. Yeah, poor Bradley Cooper. Life's life's pretty tough for him. I know, man. All he all he has to fall back on is his millions of dollars and the goodwill of millions of people. (laughs) I do feel like you hit a certain point of wealth and I know that they all live near each other and, and probably have the comparison game playing. But once you hit a certain point of wealth, I, I feel like there probably actually is more pride in your work because, you know, what's an extra $10 million for mm-hmm. him? What's an extra $40 million for him? Like, I'm sure that makes a difference. But at the end of the day, the recognition of your peers probably means more. And that's probably why you get performances like mm-hmm. this, where it feels like they're begging for an Oscar. A hundred percent, man. All right, so those are your Best Picture nominees. Brad, any final thoughts on the four major categories that we've talked about before we take a break? I'm a little surprised that Past Lives didn't get more nominations. Uh, It feels like such an Oscar movie, but also one that is grounded in reality. Mm -hmm. And uh, honestly, it kind of reminds me of The Holdovers. Oh, interesting. there's, There's so much... There's such an emphasis on let's explore who people are in both of those films that just felt very honest and real to me. And the the holdovers is funnier. Like Past Lives doesn't attempt to be funny at all. Yeah, I think that the holdovers and Past Lives just takes this really honest look at people's lives and the choices that brought them to where they are at. And and we have like an hour and a half to two hours just to 
explore their lives a little bit to see how they change because of the people around them. And and people just make really honest decisions. And it's not big. I used this word earlier, but it's not big, bombastic, like, like, holy cow, everything in my life has shifted now because of you. It's like, yeah, you just helps make me a little bit of a better person. And I'm thankful for that. And I, so I think holdovers in past lives, I just, I'm a big fan of both of them, Bob. I will have much more to say about both of these movies here after our whiskey break. But Brad, let's get to this Bardstown Discovery Series 11. What do you say? Let's get to it. All right. So today we are checking out Bardstown Bourbon Company's Discovery Series number 11. Now, if you have heard us talk about Bardstown Bourbon Company in the past, they had two main lines of whiskey that they produced, the Fusion Series and the Discovery Series. Discovery Series was always a little bit higher proof, and because of that, it's usually a little bit more expensive. This most recent release, the 11, came out in October of 2023. Brad, we're a couple months behind on reviewing this one, but, uh, you know, much like the Oscars, we have we struggle to be relevant. Yep, I am a-okay with that. As somebody who is, quote, chronically offline, <laughs> end quote, I'm, a, I'm okay with being a little irrelevant. This whiskey clocks in at 118.1 proof. It's a blend of 6, 10, and 13-year-old bourbons. Now, the 13 and 10-year-old bourbons were sourced. They were not produced at Bartstown. The 6-year-old whiskey actually is from Bartstown Bourbon Company's own distillate. Um, it's only 6% of the final blend because it was entirely aged in French oak, which I understand has a very potent character to it. And so it's kind of just in here to be hmm. to round things out, which I really like. MSRP on this, Brad, is pretty pricey. It's $140, but we have had some really, really good Discovery series in the past, and I'm excited to dive into this one. Brad, what are you picking up on the nose here? This nose is, is really spicy. Mm -hmm. uh, for me, there's like cinnamon... Almost. Have you ever had like apple pie spice mm -hmm. specifically? Yep. It, I know it's like a mixture of a few things, but it like specifically reminds me of that. Almost like a. Uh, the other day I made a French toast bake for some friends. Yep. And it, it reminds me of the streusel that I made to put on top. This is really decadent, Bob. Yeah, it is. It's really syrupy. I get a ton of plum prune raisin on this there's just like a like a really good grape character here i almost said that it reminded me of um like cinnamon raisin bread but there's really not a lot of breadiness to it i don't get much yeast but i think this would really complement a piece of like cinnamon raisin bread toast uh i like it a lot i'm excited to dive into the palate if i was going to give this a score on the nose i'd probably give it about an eight out of ten brad yeah i think i'd be in a similar place eight maybe an eight and a half as I got into the palette here, man, oh man, this is this is good stuff, Bob. It reminded me of like a creme brulee mixed with like a bread pudding with like lots of raisins and cranberries in it. Like it is very rich and decadent and sweet. And you have some of the traditional notes of caramel and vanilla. But there is a, for me, it is almost like a yeasty bread pudding it's just really, really decadent, Bob. Yeah, I think for me, it moves into being not quite brighter, but I think the the raisiny notes become more like cherry for me. I think that weeded bourbon influence mm. from that 6% uh, 
uh, Bardstown distillate actually really presents itself here. There's a there's quite a bit of cherry. There's quite a bit of wheat, and it brings in some floral character as well. It almost reminds me of like a Noah's Mill or that Willet Funk that I talk about, that sort of rose petal thing. I get quite a bit of floral yeah. on this. Yep. Uh, I like this a lot, man. And then when you go to swallow, the oak takes over, but it's like, it's not bitter oak. It's just kind of like a, it reminds you of sawdust a little bit. This is a beautiful Is it, is it a little Frenchy? A little bit Frenchy. Like I, I could feel the oak saying, <laughs> ha, ha, as I went to swallow, you know, it was, it was really an, <laughs> an interesting experience. Once again, man, if I was going to score this out, this would be eight and a half, nine range out of 10. This is a phenomenal whiskey. Yeah. I think, I think when you look at the movement from nose to palate to finish, there is complexity there. And yet there's a through line, mm-hmm. like the, the, the sweetness has a consistency of flavor that just transports you through the entire experience. Bob, their Discovery series has been hitting. Yeah. Because the the Discovery 10 was probably one of the best whiskeys I drank last year. And this is already probably one of the best whiskeys I've drank in 2024. Now, I will say, like, you know, it, we have to describe audibly to people an experience that you can only understand by tasting something. And that's very hard to do. So I guess if I had to kind of categorize this whiskey, you know, it's high proof. I would say the mouthfeel is a little bit thinner and it has that high alcohol kind of mouthfeel where you can like feel um, that that I don't know what the word is, Brad, not astringency, but like the the thinness of alcohol. Whereas sometimes when we have a high proof whiskey, it's it's more viscous. It's more syrupy. This isn't that this is definitely more in that kind of like, you know, you're going to get a zap really quickly on your tongue. And and I'm okay with that. But. I'm trying to describe the actual mouthfeel here. For me, it's one of those ones that it it like hits you with a pop of salivation, and then it almost dries your mouth out mm-hmm. as the alcohol comes through. Yeah. I mean, it's a really unique experience that I like a lot. Yeah. Uh, I would say, okay, let's just say we're scoring this out of 40, nose taste, finish, balance. This is like at least a 36 out of 40. This is like a 9 out of 10 whiskey. Um, you know, I know it's a 2023 release and we're only a month into 2024, but this is going to be one of the better whiskeys I drink in 2024. Yeah, easily. Yeah, this is a a 9 out of 10 across the board type of experience. You know, the nose starts off strong and then it just gets stronger and stronger as it goes. Mm-hmm. And I will say $140 is a lot of money. I I think that this should be like 100 to $110 whiskey, but even that like admitting that a whiskey should cost triple digits like hurts my soul a little bit. <laughs> so I, I will say it's the value here is not bad. It's a little expensive, but if you can swing it, this is a damn good bottle of whiskey, Bob. All right, man, let's get back into talking about movies. What do you say? I'm ready, man. Let's do it. All right, we are jumping back into our discussion of Oscars and movies and all good things. Brad, I just want to pick your brain a little bit before I dive into my top 10 here for 2023. When you see this list of movies, Oscary movies, and you know, until yesterday, you had only seen one of the Best Picture nominees, and at that, only because I had pestered you about it for so long. <laughs> to me, to me that indicates like I think we have a problem with movie advertising. I think we have a problem with 
people's um, uh, exposure to these movies. And I don't think that that is the general population's fault. I think that these movies are hyper-targeted to a really small percentage of the population that that movie critics who see these movies before anybody else, you know, they they have no control over the release strategy of these films. But it's also not fair to bemoan people not seeing them when I don't think people are ever exposed to them. And, you know, now Netflix just kind of gobbles things up. And so if they want their movie to get seen, it goes to a streamer after it has like a two week theatrical run. But half the time they don't even announce what streamer it's going to. So, like, it's hard for me to recommend movies to people. And I only know about them because I'm chronically online and someone who's not may never get exposed to them. And you see this list of movies and it's like, Brad, would you have even heard of any of these movies aside from Barbenheimer if if it hadn't been for me telling you about them throughout the year? No, no. And I was literally thinking about this as you were talking, Bob. Oppenheimer and Barbie feel like the only movies I have seen advertised in a classic Hollywood and maybe not classic, but at least my childhood, like advertised in a way that makes sense to how movies used to be advertised. Mm -hmm. Like they were they were sold as this massive cultural event that you have to be a part of, Mm -hmm. which might be one of the reasons why I didn't go. Who's to say? (laughs) But at the end of the day, all of these movies are hyper targeted And I think it's because they don't have a goal of making tons of money. They have the goal of making the Oscars. Right. And it's almost like the bar has been set so differently nowadays where it's like our movie either needs to make $750 million minimum or it needs to be nominated for an Oscar. Mm -hmm. And and there's nowhere in between. Those Mm -hmm. are the two options. And people make and release movies based on those two options. Well, and I think that it's kind of reactionary. Like, I think a lot of this is, you know, only Marvel movies have done well for a decade plus up until 2023. And so anything that wasn't Marvel related or IP driven, they've kind of been forced into recognizing that they are now a niche product. And so how do you how do you appeal to the niche? Because if you're not going to have broad appeal, you might as well hyper focus on that niche and i think that like if you want to make money with a small movie that played at a film festival you have to take the oscary route but you know 15 years ago what that looked like was you know i I hate to say the name out loud but uh, harvey weinstein would buy your movie and he would market the shit Mm. out of it and it would be all over you know like miramax the the company that they ran for years the weinsteins People knew the name Miramax when they watched a movie. And a lot of times it was these smaller movies yep. that that Weinstein bought. And yes, he perfected the Oscar campaign trail thing. But he also was really good at getting John and Jane Doe in Des Moines, Iowa, to be aware of what these movies were like. He would buy regular TV spots. And I think that we've now just seen these companies completely abandon traditional forms of marketing. Because they know, like, we only have to appeal to a really small group of people. They probably all listen to these random podcasts that talk about, you know, this is the awards stuff that's coming up. And so the words getting out, I just don't know where they're spending their advertising money at this point, because I don't see ads for these movies anywhere. And I'm online all the time. 
So it's like you can't really complain when the general population says, I've never heard of these because where would they be exposed to them? Yeah, I, I was going to say, I remember seeing a few advertisements for the holdovers and that's about it. Yeah. I think I've seen one commercial for past lives and that's probably because I like Googled stuff about it and the algorithm was like, yeah, we'll throw past lives a bone and <laughs> give this random chronically offline guy a single advertisement about it. But that's about it, man. I don't know anything about anatomy of a fall, the the Nazi isolation zone. What, what was that one? <laughs> that's that's the name of it. Nazi isolation zone. <laughs> so I think the thing that sucks is like then all these movies that are smaller and not known by the general population get lumped into being considered like, oh, that's just an artsy movie. And so when I recommend a, a movie to people, it's like they think that I'm I'm giving them homework to do. And it's like, no, this is actually a really mm -hmm. enjoyable, classic style Hollywood movie. They just don't release it like they like there's nothing about the holdovers that screams like art house cinema. You know what I mean? Like, it's just an enjoyable no. movie, but it's just it didn't get the exposure of some of these other films. And so I guess that's that's my big caveat, Brad, as I get into talking about my top 10 of 2023. Because I'm going to name a couple of these movies, and it's not because I'm like some highfalutin art house snob. Even though some of these movies are artistic, it's just that, like, I think that these movies are worth chasing down. And I acknowledge that it sucks that people have to chase them down at all, because this wouldn't have been the case, you know, 15 years ago. Bob, all I hear you saying is free Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> that, that is all I am hearing you say. Free my boy Harvey. Is that what we're going with? Okay. Um, I'm going to run from that implication and run right into my top 10 list. 2023 was a really good year for movies. And I think a lot of critics and a lot of people that I've talked to feel really strongly about like their top five to the extent that it's like, hey, these five movies are like maybe in my top 100 of all time. Like there were so many great movies. But then even like the B tier is really, really strong. And I think when I look at my top movies for the year, Brad, like I feel very strongly about my top five. And then, you know, I have like a B tier and it's just six through 16. So like, I don't even know what I, I guess I'll just cut it off alphabetically at 10. You know what I mean? But like, if you hear anything yeah. from this, take my top five into consideration. Uh, I'm going to start with at number 10. I'm going to start with the movie Air which is a classic dad movie by Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. It is a movie about the creation of the Air Jordan. And I put it here because, like, again, all these movies could be number 11. I'm just kind of picking randomly. I think Matt Damon is one of our most underappreciated actors because he plays real people or, like, regular dudes so well. It is an acting masterclass from Matt Damon, but because it's not flashy and because it's not screaming for an Oscar, I think this dude, like, I really hope we give Matt Damon his flowers someday, I guess is what I'm saying, because if he dies without an Oscar, we're going to look back on Oppenheimer, on air, on all these movies that he's making in this phase of his career and be like, oh my gosh, like this is the Gene Hackman of our generation. Like he gets recognized when he does something mm. big and bombastic, but when he does something small, we don't talk about him. Or maybe Robert Duvall would be a better comparison. But like he's in that sort of phase now gonna, of his I career. I was going to say Gene who? <laughs> exactly. 
All right, so number 10 is Air. Number nine, I'm going to go with Killers of the Flower Moon. Again, like a, a solid maybe eight out of 10 movie. Robert De Niro, unbelievable in this movie. And he is getting absolutely no Oscar push. He got nominated and they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Robert De Niro. It's his best performance of the 21st century. And I can't believe that we're not talking more about it. But that's Killers of the Flower Moon. Dang. Yeah, dude. Number eight, I'm going to put the movie Blackberry, which is a super fun movie with a great supporting turn from Glenn Howerton, who you may know as Dennis from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Uh, there was like eight of these movies this year that were about the rise and fall of a company. Blackberry is probably the best one of all of them. Really enjoyable. I hope it gets put on Netflix or something because it is like if they put it on a streamer, it's going to get a million views in the first couple days because it's a perfect watch at home type movie. Blackberry was super fun. At number seven, the new Michael Mann movie Ferrari with Adam Driver. This is another movie that got completely shut out of the Oscar race. A lot of people were predicting Penelope Cruz would get nominated for Best Supporting Actress, and she should have. Ferrari freaking rules, Brad. And it's like if you could combine, you know, I don't know, any racing movie with Citizen Kane in terms of like what it's about. It's about a man with serious, serious <laughs> flaws who is kind of a terrible person, but also cars go fast. And this movie rules. So Ferrari is number seven. At number six, surprisingly, I'm going to put uh, a combo of The Color Purple and Wonka. Two movies that I have heard nobody talk about this season. And it's because I'm a lover of musicals. I went to see Color Purple and I have some serious problems with like the first parts of that movie. I don't think they film it the way that like dance sequences should be filmed. But I got to the end of that movie and your boy was in tears, and it is super effective. And I had the same kind of experience with Wonka on the opposite side of things. Wonka is like a classic Hollywood musical from the 1950s. It is brilliantly shot. The songs are catchy. Like, is it kind of a slight little trifle of a movie? Absolutely. But I think I, I saw them like on back-to-back -back days, and I'm like, man, if I could find a way to mash together the color purple and Wonka, we would have the greatest musical ever made because like the 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 pathos of the color purple and the filmmaking style of Wonka were so good. But I gave both of those movies nines and I walked out of the theater and, and logged them on Letterboxd and then looked at other people's reviews. People did not like those movies, Brad. But I am here to tell you, if you are a fan mm. of musicals, the color purple, phenomenal Wonka, probably even better. Could not believe how good Wonka was, dude. I've never liked Timothy Chalamet. Mm -hmm. He just feels like the douchiest human being on the planet. <laughs> I, I, I don't know why. I would, just... I would bet money that you will watch this movie and find Timothy Chalamet charming. Like, okay. it is I, that good, I, Brad. The fact that, the fact that you'll, you're going to bet money that I'm going to watch that movie is, <laughs> uh, is a bold take. I, I don't think Vegas would give you very good odds on that. All right, at number five, these are the films I actually care about now. At number five is the Japanese import Godzilla Minus One, a movie that I knew next to nothing about going into the theater except, you know, the, the titular character. Uh, it's the best Godzilla movie ever made, dude. It is unbelievably good. Super, like, the, the special effects got nominated for an Oscar. They're really well done, but it's so much about, like, the human story behind it. It's set one year after World War II, so like it's it's essentially like the Godzilla origin story of sorts, but it really drives home the point that from, from the beginning of the Godzilla story, 
It's always been a metaphor about nuclear destruction and the absolute terror that the Japanese people lived in after World War II. I think it makes a really weirdly fascinating pairing with Oppenheimer as a result of that. And like, it's not lost on you as you're watching the movie, the psychological impact that that bomb had or those bombs had on the Japanese people, even still to this day, the scars that they still live with. It's bro. I just, I can't, I can't recommend enough Godzilla minus one. It is so good. Yeah, I, that's a movie that I want to see. I obviously won't see it in theaters, but that's like on my list to watch as soon as I can. And then I can't remember the last time this happened. All four of my top four movies of the year are nominated for Best Motion Picture at the Oscars. This is a banner year for the Bob Book Oscars, uh, you know, industrial complex. So uh, at number four <laughs> is a movie called Anatomy of a Fall. It is a movie from France. It is a movie that I went to see at the Regal at Crocker Park, which if you know anything about Northeast Ohio, it is on like the other side of Cleveland. I live in Akron, like 45 minutes away. It was the only theater this movie was playing at. I drove all the way there to see it. It blew my mind. And I think I explained this movie to you a few weeks ago, Brad, just in passing. I was like, you need to check out this movie, Anatomy of a Fall. It's a two plus hour French courtroom drama slash investigative movie where you're basically trying to figure out, did this woman murder her husband or not? That's like the entire plot of the movie. Did she do it? Mm. And you learn a lot about how the French court system works. But I think the most compelling thing I can say to you, Brad, about this two plus hour French movie is that it doesn't feel like a two plus hour French movie. <laughs> like. It uses so many modern sort of Hollywood style storytelling conventions. It's never boring. It moves like crazy. The shocks and twists and turns of this case are just incredible to watch. The performances are are mind blowing. I can't recommend this movie highly enough. And like, it's probably going to be the the hardest sell of all of my top 10. But I can't think of a person that I know that like if you've watched Law and Order or if you've ever listened to a true crime podcast or any of that kind of stuff, this movie is up your alley. Anatomy of a Fall. You got to check it out when it goes to VOD and streaming. Yeah, honestly, the way you've talked about it, it reminds me of uh, Passive Glory a little bit of like set in a foreign area and a compelling courtroom drama that has real people in it. Uh, I'd be very intrigued. Yeah, it's a good one. All right. Number three is a movie that you and I have both seen, Brad. It's The Holdovers. And I'm just going to let you take this one, man. Like you, you've said a little bit about it. Give your 30 second pitch to John and Jane Doe in Des Moines, Iowa, about why they should watch The Holdovers. This movie is wildly funny. The acting from Paul Giamatti and who who plays Mary, the the head the head chef at the school. Yeah, her name is uh, Divine Joy Randolph, who, by the way, is the front runner to win Best Supporting Actress. She's won like every other award. Yeah, because she's incredible in this. <laughs> uh, I mean, she is just stunningly powerful. the The scene where she is in the kitchen at the Christmas party. And the custodian oh, yeah. and Paul Giamatti mm -hmm. and and Sully are there. Oh my goodness! I I don't know if I have cried more at a performance 
<laughs> than her performance in this movie. Uh, the the holdovers is just honest. It's raw. It's silly. It's fun. There's just so many moments in this film. And if you want to have a good father son cry, as as Bob often does, mm. the scene where Sully goes to see his dad made me weep. Mm. So good. Yeah, and and I will say it is a comedy with with dramatic elements like it is the kind of movie that you used to go see that was like you will laugh you will cry you will walk out of the theater saying why don't they make movies like this anymore it is like if you liked movies that were made 20 years ago this is the movie for you because it's it just felt like a throwback (laughs) to times where people weren't wearing capes in every single movie yeah yeah incredible film go see the holdovers all right number two is oppenheimer Christopher Nolan's masterpiece. I mean, it is this big, flawed, interesting document of a movie that is three hours long. And the first hour is about one thing and the second hour is about another thing. And then the third hour is a lot of people's least favorite part of the movie. I think it's the most compelling part of the film. It it turns into this Oliver Stone, JFK conspiracy kind of film all about how the government conspired to take Oppenheimer down, how they used his naivete and his promiscuity against him so that they could get this bomb out of his hands, how they kind of set him up all along. Like, it's just it is a mind blowing film. I've said that about a couple movies on my list now, but Oppenheimer is one of those movies that I was in the theater watching it and I said to myself, I don't think I love this as much as my number one film of the year. But I don't know another movie that's going to wedge itself into number two. It it's so apparent as you watch it that this is your best picture winner for the year. And I haven't had that experience in a theater in a long, long time. It just felt like a juggernaut as I watched it. And I think that it's it's yeah. probably going to win. And I think that it deserves it because this is the kind of movie that the Oscars were made to honor. And I really want you to go see it, Brad. <laughs> I'll do my best, Bob. That, that, that was really half-hearted, man. Yeah, I will I will do my absolute best to make it to your movie, Oppenheimer. Mm. Number one is Past Lives, the only other movie that I convinced Brad to watch. It is just, it is an achingly beautiful movie about grown-ups. And I can't emphasize that enough. I, I think I pitched it to you, Brad, as brief encounter for a new generation. And that's kind of true, but, you know, Brief Encounter, it's right there in the title. It's about a a fling. It's about something brief that happened, whereas Past Lives is about, you know, what if um, what if your childhood crush still loved you 20 years later and you have to sort through the Mm -hmm. what ifs of your relationship? I went to see this movie. It shook me to my core. And I went home and I told my wife, I said, Carrie, we have to go see this movie together. And part of it is because. She's always been my movie buddy. Like, she'll go see weird art house stuff with me if I want her to. And, like, she's in. We went to see this movie. We had one of the best talks we've had in a, in a year on the way home from the movie. Because it is so honest and so raw about what a marriage is and what a commitment to a marriage looks like. And the sacrifices you have to make and the compromises you have to make. And learning to live with the choices that you make as an adult knowing that making choices inherently limits what you can do. You can't have it all, right? You can't explore every option and every what if. 
And this movie is very much about how adults in situations like this, grownups with mature feelings, handle a situation like this. And it is just like, Brad, I've ne- I haven't seen a movie about human relationships that is this powerful in I don't know how long. This movie blew me away. I saw it in like May and I posted about it immediately and said, this is the best movie I've seen in at least three years. And I don't think anything is going to come close to this, man. It's just, it it blew me away. And I, I'd love to know what you thought of it. I think it speaks deeply to the truth that the past is not in the past. That when we, like like literally, when we think about a memory, when a memory pops into our brain, it's not happening in the past. There are currently neurological functions happening that are bringing this memory to you in the present and it's real the the smells that you remember the sights the sounds the you know those sensational things are real here in the present and we have to decide how we're going to engage with our past and this movie illustrates that truth about how the human soul and brain works and intermingles this movie illustrates that better than any film I've ever seen. All right. So those are my top 10 of the year. I would love to know what you guys thought. Brad, before we get out of here, I have one last challenge for you. I stopped counting on it looks like January 2nd, and I've seen a few more since then. I want you to guess the number of 2023 releases that I saw. Like Ugh. not movies that I watched in the oh, calendar man. year, but like. Movies from last year that I have seen. It is, would you say that it is higher than in years past? I would. Yeah, yeah, definitely. 80 films. Uh, I stopped counting at 124. So that pales oh, in comparison to a, a lot of... disgusting yes, amount of movies. That pales in comparison to a number of paid movie critics and guests that we have on this show. You got to remember, folks... I do this in my spare time. I've got a job that has nothing to do with movies or this podcast. Uh, It is, in fact, and indeed, a disgusting number of films. And what pisses me (laughs) off is I still haven't seen all the Best Picture nominees, Brad. I can't freaking believe it. The Zone of Interest had better blow me away or I'm going to just be livid with that movie. There's a a lot of pressure on this one, Bob. I'll tell you what, man. Uh, It looks like it has to compete with movies like my number 121, Trolls Band Together. Uh, So we'll see if it can top (laughs) that film. But yeah, that does it for our 2023 recap and Oscar nominations. Let us know what you think of the Oscars, of the top 10 list. What movies did we not talk about that you want to hear us mention in future episodes? You can find us on all of our social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at Film Whiskey. Or you can jump onto our Discord. I am about to get on there right now and start a conversation around movies in 2023. So if you want to talk about movies, you want to talk about whiskey, or anything else going on in your life, join our Discord. You can find a link to it at the end of every single one of our show notes. We will be back on Tuesday with another regularly scheduled episode. But until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time. 